to Matthew chapter 6 this morning. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 10 will be our passage this morning as we open up this week of prayer. Uh, as a faith family, we're setting aside this entire week to pray, to declare our desperate dependence on God through prayer together. Uh, so you will notice uh, in the Church Center app a guide that will guide us throughout this week. Uh, so you'll want to note that and be a part uh, of our times together. Matthew chapter 6, even as you're turning there, uh, if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, it's page 761, you'll see something very familiar, the Lord's Prayer. And we want to look at just a section of that prayer this morning in verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'm not sure if you've noticed this like I have, but we humans, especially those of us here in America, have a certain infatuation with royalty, don't we? It's been said that nearly 11.4 million Americans watched the live coverage of Queen Elizabeth's funeral back in September. Almost double that amount watched the wedding of Prince William and Kate Middleton back in April of 2011, and 33.2 million tuned in to watch the funeral of Princess Diane in 1997. The attraction to British royalty continues in shows like on Netflix, The Crown, which has been said to be one of the top 10 best television programs. Even Prince Harry's engagement made the headlines here in America. But why is it that we are so preoccupied with royalty, especially royalty in England? I mean, we are the people who rejected the monarchy. We rejected them for our independence. At least that's what history has told us. The funny thing is, it's not just the royalty of England that grabs our attention. It's any type of royalty. And our fascination with royalty starts at a young age where fairy tales abound with kings and queens, princes and princesses at the center. If this wasn't so, Disney's magical kingdom wouldn't be all that enchanting and fascinating, would it? If we're honest, we love the pageantry. We love the elegance of royalty. We even go so far as to impose a kind of royalty on our leaders here in America. The days of the Kennedy administration are remembered as the Camelot era. We speak of certain jazz musicians as the Count or the Duke. And remember Elvis Presley as what? The King. And yet, here in America, we still have a certain aversion to sovereignty. You just walk through the streets of Philadelphia and you can still see signs back to that revolutionary era with, where it says, no taxation without representation. Don't tread on me. And quite possibly the boldest slogan of all, we serve no sovereign here. Now, deep down, we just, we just don't like to be ruled over. And history tells us that over and over again. Not just history here in America, but in the entire world. Uh, we don't always live willingly under the king or queen. The Samaritans revolted against the Byzantine Empire, Scotland against England, the French Revolution, Benedict Arnold, Aaron Burr, the list could go on and on. 
Even so, while we join the likes of these in our relative hostility toward authority, we still tend to retain an interest in royalty. And perhaps our infatuation lies deeper than we really would like to admit. Could it be possible that our aversion to sovereignty actually reveals our innermost desires to be sovereign ourselves? Well, here in Matthew chapter 6, our Savior actually confronts this particular aversion we have to royalty. And while many of us would not classify the Lord's Prayer as radical or even revolutionary, the truth is what Jesus instructs us to pray in these verses are anything but serene. Al Mohler writes, the Lord's Prayer is for revolutionaries, for men and women who want to see the kingdom of this world give way to the kingdom of our Lord. The Lord's Prayer is anything but tame. And what adds force and a punch to this prayer is the fact that Matthew, throughout his gospel so far, has been laying out the king, kingship of Jesus Christ. So if you turn back to Matthew chapter 1, what do we see? We see the genealogy where Jesus is in the line of King David in chapter 2. The wise men visit King Herod, asking, where is he who was born king of the Jews? In chapter 3, we see the coronation of Christ through his baptism and God's declaration over him as his beloved son with whom he is well pleased. In chapter 4, includes Satan's temptation and the questioning of Christ's status as king as he shows him the kingdom of the world and their splendor and offers them to him if he just falls down and worships him. Now, in chapters 5 through 7, Matthew records this sermon from Christ as he lays out the kingdom principles for those who follow him. And so it's here in the midst of this sermon that we read these radical and revolutionary words. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, the petitions of adoration Christ instructs us to pray at the beginning of this prayer ought to correctly center us in our prayers on giving God the glory and honor he alone deserves. Before we even begin to think of ourselves and our needs, even before we share concerns for others, we must start with our holy God, the one to whom we pray and the one to whom we desperately depend upon. J.I. Packer writes, all right-minded praying starts with a long look Godward and a deliberate lifting up of one's heart to give thanks and adore. And so we begin this act of desperate dependence, for that is the essence of prayer, by acknowledging both the mercy extended to us in Christ so that we might address our holy God as our Father along with our supreme desire that his name be hallowed, that is, that our Father would be viewed as transcendently holy. Now, as we have recorded in verse 10, our long look Godward continues as we concede God's rule and reign and resolve while petitioning it for it to be seen here on earth as it is in heaven. You see, here we learn that in prayer we are submitting our plans and dreams to the rule, reign, and resolve of our sovereign king. 
in prayer, we submit our plans, our, our dreams, our hopes, our desires to the rule, reign, and resolve of another, of our sovereign king. And so as we study this phrase this morning, As a church, I believe God is calling us afresh this new year to release the firm grasp we have on our lives and to fully surrender to his rule, his reign, and his resolve. He's calling us afresh to release our grasp, our desire to rule, reign over our lives, our own resolve. We are called to release that and fully surrender to our King. That in 2023, God is calling you and I to humbly admit that we are in fact desperate for his kingdom and dependent on his will. This morning, there's only one point to this sermon. As you see, it's a short verse, 10. This one point is, that we admit we are desperate for his kingdom and dependent on his will. And talk of the kingdom is not out of the ordinary for Jesus Christ. In fact, back in chapter 4, Matthew informs us that the content of Jesus' teaching from the very beginning has been this. From that time, that is from the point of his temptation in the wilderness, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mark in his gospel writes, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into the Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. As we continue throughout the gospels, this message of the kingdom of God arriving is common from the lips of our Savior. But have you ever wondered, what does it mean? What is the kingdom of God? Well, I'm glad you asked. We're going to find out this morning, what is this kingdom that is to come? This question is one of the oldest and most hotly contested theological issues in the Christian church. And while I don't expect to solve all of those problems this morning, I hope to help us see what it is that we are declaring as we pray your kingdom come. For some, this phrase seems to point purely to a future reality to be inaugurated at the millennial reign of Christ. Others have said that the kingdom of God arrives today through social reform, social justice, political action, and having the right candidate in office. But among all the attempts to explain what is the kingdom of God, the one I believe proves to be most helpful and most in line with Scripture is an explanation from Augustine in his 5th century work, The City of God. It's in that work that he uses the metaphor of a city to describe the contrast of the kingdom of God with the kingdom of this world. And commenting on this work, one author writes, building upon Jesus' teaching about the first and second greatest commandments, we have recorded for us in Matthew 22, Augustine suggests that the Christian must understand that there are two cities in this world. The first is the city of God. This city is God's not merely because he resides there, but because his character and his authority define it. There, God's sovereign authority is unmitigated and unconditioned. It's ordered according to the rule and reign of God's law, which demonstrates simultaneously and in equal proportion his justice, 
His righteousness, but also His mercy and love. Thus, in the city of God, everything is exactly as God would have it to be. On the other hand, as a result, the city of man is not as it should be, Augustine says. Unlike the city of God, the city of man is characterized by selfishness, ungodliness, conflict, and strife. The city of man is temporary, both conditioned and created. It does not exist on its own terms, though as Paul makes clear in Romans chapter 1, the city of man is refusing to acknowledge its creaturely and dependent status. And so Augustine argues that what characterizes these two cities is a primary love. The love of man arouses the city of man. It's a self-love, while the love of God enlivens the city of God. In other words, the kingdom of God is where God is supreme, where his rule, reign, and resolve are ultimate. Graham Goldsworthy provides us with this simple definition, and I think we've shared it before, that it is God's people in God's place under his rule and blessing. And as we follow throughout the story of God from Genesis to Revelation, we see this over and over again. For you remember, in the very beginning of God's word, in Genesis chapter 1, we see the earliest expression of God's kingdom as he rules over his people in his place. He rules over Adam and Eve in that garden with his word. And then, as the story continues on, we see that God creates this nation, this nation called Israel at, the Mount, at Mount Sinai, and he delivers to them his rule, his law, as the king of heaven and earth. He separates the Israelites as his people and tells them, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. And then he provides them with his place, the promised land. However, as the story continues, we see Israel reject God's rule. They reject him as ruler and king, and so they are removed from his place. But God is faithful. He always is faithful, and God's kingdom will rule. And so as we step into the Gospels and Jesus steps into the scene, we hear him proclaim, the kingdom of God is here. In other words, God's person, his place, his rule is here, and it's revealed in Christ. We've seen this throughout our study over the last year in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus' actions validate this claim that the kingdom of God is here. His miracles demonstrate that indeed the future was breaking into the present. One author writes, Jesus gives sight to the blind. That is, the kingdom of God come near. Jesus causes the lame to walk. That is, the kingdom of God come near. Jesus touches and cleanses lepers. That is, the kingdom of God come near. Jesus calms the wind and waves. That is the kingdom. Jesus multiplies the loaves to feed the hungry. That is the kingdom. Jesus champions the powerless. He stands in solidarity with the poor. That is the kingdom. So it is as we move into the new covenant age, now that Jesus has fulfilled Israel's failings, all those, Paul writes, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, all who come to him in faith 
are identified as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You see, the church is now the current expression of God's kingdom. We are God's people in his place, his temple under his rule. And yet, we're still longing for that final expression of God's kingdom in that new creation when all things are renewed and restored. And so, Scripture leads us to conclude that the kingdom of God has already been, it is now, and it is yet to come. The kingdom of God has already been, it is now, today, and is yet to come. R.C. Sproul states it this way, Jesus' kingship is not something that remains in the future. No, Christ is king right this very minute. He is in the seat of the highest cosmic authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to God's anointed Son. This becomes immensely practical for us here in verse 10 where our Savior instructs us to say these radical, revolutionary words. Your kingdom come. This is an admission that we have no other king. It is conceding our desperation for his rule and reign over our lives. And if I'm honest with you this morning, this is why this statement is one of, if not the hardest, phrases in this prayer for me to actually pray. You see, I'm not always sure I want God's rule and reign over my life. I want to skip on to give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. I'm not always willing to live under God's rule because I think I've got it under control. I can handle this. I'm, I'm in charge. I, in fact, living in the city of Dan sounds pretty good. Having everyone bow to me, having it all as I want it to be, I mean, I want to be king of my own life. And I can prove this to you in a thousand, probably a billion ways. In fact, one way this reality is often played out in my life is that there are subjects who reside in the city of Dan who often begin to form what appears to be a coup Usually late at night, around bedtime. No, not Megan. She's usually on my side. But others seem to fight against that bedtime. And I don't know about you, but that seems to be the time for me when my kingdom, my rule and reign is most threatened. Unfortunately, self-love wins out far too often in the city of Dan at nighttime. Because in my mind... My sovereignty is being attacked, and I won't have it. Go to bed. You've been there, right? May not be kids at bedtime, but each of us have our own little kingdoms, our own little cities where we want to rule and reign. We want our, our comfort, our ease, our pleasure, our hopes and dreams, to come. And when someone threatens that, oh, watch out. But it's in those very moments that this phrase ought to wreck us. Your kingdom come. Another oft 
author profoundly notes, we typically spend our lives seeking to expand our own kingdoms, increasing our assets, resources, and influence. Our kingdoms can include the workplace, the church, the club, the sporting team, the home. We grow very protective of anything into which we have invested our time and our energy and money. So when people challenge our kingdom, we react defensively and perhaps even with some hostility. This simple observation of human nature makes Jesus' prayer all the more extraordinary, all the more revolutionary. Any invitation for God's kingdom to come threatens our own kingdom to come. Kingdoms are, by definition, mutually exclusive. Any domain with two kings is ripe for conflict. Thus, we might express the phrase, this author writes, your kingdom come another way. My kingdom done. For the Lord's kingdom displaces our own. My kingdom done away with. This is where that second phrase here in this verse leads us to declare, because my kingdom is done, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For you see, Submission to God's rule and reign over our lives requires our submission to his will being done. We would never ask a king to do our will, would we? So it is in this declaration of desperate dependence, your kingdom come, your will be done, that we aren't asking God to do our will, but rather bring our will into line with his. So friend, let me ask you this. Are you desperate for his kingdom to come? Are you willing to lay down your kingdom and your will for his? If we pray this phrase sincerely, it demands surrender of our values to embrace his. It means releasing into his hands the reins we hold so tightly. Your kingdom come does not invite the Father to come and just merely watch us, but to come and rule us. We do not invite him to partner with us in our lives, but to take charge of our lives. You see, at the heart of this simple prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done, is true faith, true repentance, turning from our rule to his. So if there ever was a sinner's prayer to be found in the pages of Scripture, this is it. For within this phrase lies absolute surrender and total dependence. So friend, if you're here this morning and you have never turned in faith, repenting of your sins, I would plead you today to come to the one who tells us, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then who would live that out? Who in that garden of Gethsemane would cry out, Not as I will, but as you 
will. You see, friend, Jesus Christ cried out those words knowing what was to come, his death on the cross, not because of his sin, but because of ours, of yours and mine. He cried this out not because he was defeated and couldn't get his own way. No, he cried out not as I will, but as you will, because his purpose here on earth was to do the Father's will. And it was the Father's will to crush him for you and for me. To take upon himself our sin and the penalty for our sin and to pay for it all. To take upon himself our sin so that we might be forgiven. Oh, this is the good news of the gospel. And so, friend, turn to him today and declare your kingdom come, your will be done. For those of us here this morning who have received the, the gift of faith, to those of us who, who have our wills have been set free to obey Christ, the good news for us is that because Christ prayed those words, not as I will, but as you will, so we can as well. Oh, certainly not in our own strength, but in the strength of the Spirit who is given to us and who empowers us for obedience to his will. So because that is true, let me ask you this. Are you truly dependent on his will? Can you say, not as I will, but as you will? Your will be done? Or are you still holding on to your own will? your own resolve so tightly that you fail to see the freedom there is in obeying and and abiding by his will, his resolve. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Oh, it's not just a cute little prayer to be said on the knees, at the bedside, by little ones. No, this is not tame. This is revolutionary. This stands against all our culture is crying out to us in this day. Be your own man. Do your own thing. Be who you want to be. Jesus says, pray then like this. Your kingdom come your will be done. I once heard the story of the brilliant ethicist John Cavanaugh, who went to work for three months at the House of the Dying in Calcutta. On his first morning there, he met Mother Teresa and she asked, what can I do for you, John? He asked her to pray for him. What do you want me to pray, she said. Cavanaugh replied, and it expressed the deepest desire of his heart when he said, pray that I have clarity. To Kavanaugh's surprise, she said firmly, no, I will not do that. Clarity is the last thing you are clinging to and must let go of. When Kavanaugh commented that she always seemed to have the clarity he longed for, she laughed and replied, I've never had clarity. What I have always had is trust. And so I will pray that you trust God. 
You see, friends, far too often the words that are in front of us this morning have been prayed out of tradition, not out of trust. Many times we have uttered these words hoping God's rule and God's will would align with ours. Oh, but this new year, may these be words that flow from desperate and dependent lips. Your kingdom come. My kingdom is done. Your will be done on earth as it it is in heaven. For you see, in prayer, we submit our plans and dreams to the rule, reign, and resolve of our sovereign King. So Father, I would pray that this year, that this faith family that has gathered as Calvary Baptist Church, that this would be on our lips, not just as tradition, not just as a phrase we've heard over and over again, but as the yearning, the admission, the outworking of the faith, the repentance that you have gifted us in our hearts, and we would go throughout this year saying, your kingdom come, not ours. Your rule and reign, would you have that on our lives? May we set aside our dreams, our hopes, our desires, and submit them to what you would have. Oh, may your will be done in my life as it is in heaven, in this church as it is in heaven, in this city. God, may we be those who in our submission to the good King Call others as well to come, bow before the King of all kings. Worship and adore Him, Christ, our Lord. So God, would you use this phrase to shake us, to wreck us in those moments when we want our kingdom to rule and reign. Would you move us to submit to your kingdom and your will?